0: You know how many, I mean, I, how many times it took me to hear the word Peloton and realize we weren't talking just about a bicycle company? I mean, I told you the <laughs> I'm like, wait, hold on. Wait, the Peloton is a thing, and then there's the Echelon is the uh, is is another thing. That's where really, they, yeah. Yeah. There, there, there's so much about this sport that I just find fascinating, but all these jerseys. But the, tell me about, there's one more jersey. There's well, the...
1: It used to be a jersey, um, okay. but now it's just kind of a. You have to look it up, but the but the, the, they called it the Flamme Rouge, uh, oh. which is uh, French for the Red Lantern, um, oh. and it's basically the last place.
0: This episode is so much fun. Uh, I'm excited for you to listen to it. I, I need to tell you it's 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 a it's a it's a long play, uh, version. So this is the maiden voyage. Of level set. First of all, thank you for for joining us on level set. Uh, this conversation is with longtime friend, uh, writer, and cycling enthusiast Joe Thompson. And you're getting a little bit of insight in this conversation with how conversations with Joe and I go. Uh, we'd originally planned to talk for about forty five minutes. We are over on that, but uh, you know that's one of the things I feel like that's been missing. Uh, over the last couple of years, it's just conversation, like just in-depth conversation with people who know things. And Joe certainly knows his cycling, so I'll tell you, you're 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 not gonna probably have the time to listen to this entire episode uh, in one sitting, unless you are doing a long walk or hike, or you're doing household chores. You're probably going to want to break this up, but I promise you, uh, if you have any remote interest into the world of cycling, we're not just talking about racing, but we're talking about uh, just so many components of 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 the sport of cycling. You know, it's just it's just super fascinating. And so, if you're looking to to break out of your comfort zone, if you're looking to learn about new and novel things, uh, you could do worse. Um, than listening to this episode of Level Set. I hope you enjoy it. I certainly had the conversation with Joe. Um, And again, thank you so much. Please feel free to subscribe to the show. Uh, We're on, you know, wherever you listen to a podcast. Should you give us a rating? Give us five stars because four stars feels like love. Um, No, actually, no, I got that wrong. It's been a minute. Five stars feels like love. Four stars is the friend zone. And quite honestly, who really wants to be in the friend zone? Not saying that friends aren't important. We need friends. I just don't think any of us want to be there. So please give us five stars. Anyway, I've talked too long. Let's get into this first episode of Level Set. Hey, everybody. Uh, there Welcome. we go. There we go. <laughs> welcome to the first episode of level set conversation with people who know things i am your host jerry jones i'm excited to be here with my friend writer cycle enthusiast um joe thompson joe welcome to level set man
1: hey thank you thank (laughs) you for having me
0: um yeah i was gonna say that you're you're a longtime friend of the show um I don't know how possible that is, considering this is the very first episode of the show. But you and I have been friends for what almost thirty years now. Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And if this is the first episode, I'm the first friend of the show. That's right. No,
0: yes, you're the you're you're the first friend of the show. See, that's the thing. There will never be another first friend. You will always, Joe Thompson. You I'm will honored. Always, I feel like I need to give you like some sort of a plaque or something. First friend of the show. Maybe I'll get like a leveler and like have it. There you go. Joe Thompson. But what I, so I wanted to have this conversation. I, I realized that I, you know, like I'm just very interested in how you got into cycling and, and how you have come to just amass so much, knowledge and interest in the sport but how did it start for you
1: well it's you know everybody rides their bike for the first time uh, and then you can do math and figure out how old i am uh but you know about the early i can't years, i can't I really do math I,
0: I suck at math joe i suck at
1: math <laughs> <laughs> excuse me <clears throat> But uh, yeah, so uh, about 1984, give or take, started getting into uh, BMX and freestyle riding and, and the types of things you see today on, on the X Games. But
0: mm-hmm. of course, in
1: 1984, there was none of that. So we, we had magazines and they were just still photos and stuff like that. And around that time, uh, I started working at a bicycle shop. I was mm. 14. And so they couldn't officially have me on the payroll. So I got paid $3 an hour in parts. So at the end of the week, I'd figure oh, out yes. how much money I had and I'd buy parts hmm. uh, to put on my bike. And it was about 1985. And then in 86 was the first year. Um, yeah, it was the first year that, that Greg looked uh, to win the Tour de France. And being in a bicycle shop, you just couldn't escape it. I mean, he was on the cover of every magazine. He was, everybody that walked in wanted a bike like his. Uh, and so I just started getting into, because that was the other thing was once the magazines were out of date, um, I'd take them home uh, because, mm. you, you know, you'd send them back and he uh, the manager would... Uh, pull the covers off of them and send those back to get credit because you didn't have to send the whole magazine back. So you send the cover back and you get credit for the magazines that you didn't sell. And then I would take, I would take them home and just, just page through them and devour them. Um, And so that was how I started getting into uh, the, the European professional road racing circuit. So let me ask you: So before Greg Lamont, you were into BMX.
0: Did you have Vans? Were you wearing Vans? Were you kind of like uh, Spicoli, basically?
1: Were you? Were you uh, I wasn't quite Spicoli, but yeah, <laughs> we were wearing Vans and we were wearing uh, Vision Streetwear, and uh, I don't know if you remember that.
2: Yeah, but yeah,
1: we were we were into all that kind of stuff. And actually, if you for those of you who are listening, if you want a good encapsulation of what was going on in BMX there in the mid eighties, there's a movie called rad uh, yeah, and it's I awful. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it, it is a bad movie. It is so bad. It's a terrible movie. It's a terrible plot. It's, but, but again, at the time it was like, that was the first time we saw active footage of the things that we were seeing in photographs in the Mm -hmm. magazines so we we actually watched the tricks as they as they played themselves out instead of just like one two three four five snapshots of it with a description you could actually see the guy do the tail flip and all that kind of stuff so rad even though it was terrible we that was something else that we devoured and we had bootleg copies and bootlegs of bootlegs, you know, we'd run off copies for friends and stuff like that. And that really rad was really kind of what was going on at the time that I was getting into it. I'm just going to
0: tell you right now, Joe, so not only are you the first guest, not only are you the first friend of level set, but you just in this moment have introduced what I I am now going to suggest is going to be a, a semi-regular segment. In my mind, I'm like, oh, a spinoff of level set is like, we're gonna have the best worst movie nights. I wanna do I, I want you to come back where we're gonna watch Rad together. Okay. And 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 then we'll we'll come back and talk about. It. So Rad is gonna be the first best worst film. Review <laughs> that we do
1: well, and and the next film that then happens once I start getting into the road racing is another terrible movie called American Flyers, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's got uh, um oh, I just lost it Kevin uh, Kevin Bacon no no oh now you're talking about quick uh, Quicksilver Quicksilver it's Kevin Bacon okay and and that's a that's the movie about uh, bicycle delivery in New mm-hmm. York. Uh, Kevin Costner was in American Flyers. Oh my gosh, so a young Kevin Costner, a young Kevin Costner with a mustache and a couple other people that you've read Ray Don Chong is in it. Oh wow. Um, and the whole thing centers around uh, that they're gonna go to what they call was it the the Hell of the West is the name of the race, and it's loosely based on a race that was going on at the time uh, that was called the Red Zinger, and then turned into uh, the Coors Classic, and again Ooh. that was a whole sponsorship thing, and it was through Colorado, okay. um, or it was in it, throughout Colorado is what mm. I should say, um, and and that really was the nerve center of American cycling at the, at, mm. in the mid 80s was Colorado because mm. the mountains were there, uh, the Olympic, uh, uh, the main Olympic, uh, not stadium, but the, the mm. facility was there. Um, and so uh, Boulder was a huge play, a lot of American cyclists, uh, who went on to the pro ranks and who went over to Europe during that period came out of the Boulder area although Lemond mm. was from Minneapolis was from Minnesota okay um, and Lemond like a lot of people um, used cycling i shouldn't say a lot of people but but uh, uh, he was a, wanted to be a speed skater and <gasps> so during the off season speed skaters would ride ride their bikes for to build up their leg muscles mm. um and eric Haydn is actually yeah. also yeah he is a key figure in american cycling because it's his name uh and all of his gold medals from 84 in the winter games mm as a speed skater that then converts into the summer games in 84 and getting Seven Eleven to sponsor uh, a lot of the cycling aspects of the 84 olympic games
0: okay i'm so glad you mentioned that because you you've said before and i found what you said fascinating so i'm very interested in seeing if you'd be willing to go down this road so like I'm. You've talked about how Seven Eleven, yes, is pivotal in American cycling, and so what I'm hearing from you that Seven Eleven got involved via
1: s- speed skating, like the Winter Olympics. <laughs> well, they initially they initially got involved through the '84 Olympics. Okay, but it was Eric Hiden and, and a and and a couple of coaches who were able to bring to 7-11 um kind of the presentation and and mm-hmm. the, and the uh, panache that comes with mm-hmm. that to be able to say okay 7-11 plus eric heiden equals mm-hmm. publicity uh, in 1984 bicycle okay. racing um and in the olympics you've got a road race um, so they've got signage along the, the road, 7-Eleven. Mm-hmm. Uh, 7-Eleven also ponied up a lot of money to build uh, what's called a velodrome, which is the track. Mm. So when they ride track, there's you know they, they ride on, a, on an inverted uh, kind of an angle. And yeah. um, not unlike uh, road racing, you know, yeah. the car racing where they go around yeah. in circles. Um, And so a velodrome is basically like the speedway, but for bicycles. Yeah. Um, And that takes money and it takes money to build and it takes money to maintain. And, and uh, so 7-Eleven was involved in that. 7-Eleven was also heavily placed in the movie Rad. Mm. And then as it spins off into after the Olympics, 7-Eleven actually sponsors a full team
2: hmm.
1: uh, with the objective of going to Europe and and racing in the Tour de France. Were we, were we were corporations were American corporations sponsoring
0: teams uh, like on the magnitude of a 7-Eleven? Were they doing that before?
1: 84. Not at the magnitude of 7-Eleven. Levi's okay. got involved a little bit. Um and Raleigh, which is actually a, a British bicycle manufacturer, mm-hmm. um sponsored a lot of Americans, I got even though they weren't an American team. Mm-hmm. Um and then uh but yeah, Levi's was probably as close as you got. And then once 7-Eleven kind of proved out the business model and and prove that you could you could get a return on on that investment that's when schwinn and wheaties get involved at one point uh gatorade sponsored a team um and then eventually you get to the late 90s where um 7-eleven stops their sponsorship and motorola takes Mm. over the team okay so the team People are the same, but now they've got a new sponsor. Gotcha. Um, yeah, because the whole uh, the whole business model is based on sponsorship, and so every one of the cyclists and every one of their vehicles, it's all a billboard for whatever the sponsoring team is. Yeah. Um, and then Motorola then turns into Postal, which we all know well, about Lance. Mm. Mm. And actually, um, yeah, yeah. For a bit of time, Lance did ride for Motorola. Yeah. Um, and right before he got cancer, he changed to a French team, uh, and then he got cancer, and they canceled his contract. Mm. So,
2: so he went
1: back, and 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 by then Postal was was sponsoring the team. So we' we're, we want to
0: definitely talk about Lance um I I'm certainly interested in in talking about you you mentioned the name Greg Lamond and how he he saved you from becoming Spicoli. um <laughs> I before we before we go back to Lamont and, and maybe I kind of want to go because I'm sure when we talk about Greg Lamont there's there's so much riches it sounds like he's kind of a bridge from there's a an, an era, and he's kind of like a bridge of a new era of cycling. Talk to us real quick about what we saw over these past two or three weeks in the 2022 okay. tour.
1: Okay, so so essentially coming into the 22 tour, um, you have uh, a, a gentleman named uh, Taji Pogacar. Mm -hmm. Uh, and excuse all of my accents but uh he had won uh 21 and he had also won 2020 Mm -hmm. so he's two-time winner coming in at 23 years old um which is amazing to have won two tours before you're 23 uh so obviously he's the favorite yeah. Uh, there's a few other, uh, folks who, who, who have, uh, some big, uh, opportunities. Um, Primrose check, I believe is how you pronounce his name. He had come in, uh, second place, uh, or third place a few times. And he really challenged Bogachar in the last couple of years, um, and he was, and so, real quick, uh, Pogachar is on um, uh, the United Emirates team. So, mm-hmm. as a state, uh, UAE has sponsored a team. Okay. Uh, Prim, uh, rides for Yumbo uh, Visma, which I don't know what they do. I'd have to look that up. Um, but they're a company in Denmark, I think. Um, <clears throat> And then uh, Enos Grinders, which is a a British team, uh, was fielding uh, Garrett Thomas,
2: Mm.
1: who won in 2019, I think, Mm. maybe 18. He was a former winner. So he's he's constantly up there as a favorite as well. And really, those were kind of the three folks going into Mm -hmm. it as things progressed um Rolchek actually crashed out, but at the time his he had a teammate Jonas Vinegard hmm. um, who had been making a name but hadn't really had the major podiums but he yeah. was certainly somebody he was a force to be reckoned with yeah. um and he had he actually took so it won it, it I want to say about stage six or eight um. Pogachar took the yellow jersey, uh, which means he was leading the race. Um, and that's the overall. We can talk about all the mm-hmm. different jerseys. Yeah. There, but the overall race winner wears the yellow jersey. And it changes hands depending on who's in first place. So, so, uh, Vinigard takes yellow from Pogachar on stage 11. And at that point, Pogashar is kind of behind the eight ball. He's got a, he has to make up the time. So when the two of them are even on the road, theoretically they're side by side, but in, in the standings, you know, Vinagard is two minutes up yeah. the road because he's, yeah. he's two minutes ahead. Yeah. So Pogashar has to gap Vinagard's, at least two minutes before he can get back into position. Mm. Um, The major showdown that happened this year was on stage 18, uh, which was uh, the, the, the finish line ended at the the peak of a mountain called Hotakam, which Mm. is a brutal mountain. They categorize the mountains in, in the tour de France and, and, four is like the easiest one is the hardest and then you have beyond category which is like the the really really hardest and hotakam is is beyond category and the opportunity to put that gap in on venue um is there for because there were three other climbs throughout that day as well and Pogachar attacked every single time he could, and Vinugard had him covered, um, and just they could not – Pogachar did not have the, – the, the term that they use is he did not have the legs, mm-hmm. and he just could not do it, and by the time the end of the day happened – it was pretty much a done deal, which is not unusual in the Tour de France. Yeah. Typically, you know who's going to be the overall winner two or three stages before it's over.
0: How many stages are there in this? In this? 20.
1: 20. They do 20 stages over three weeks. Uh, they do two rest days. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes the rest day is a travel day uh, where where they will uh, cover a lot. Because it's not anymore i mean it used to be literally you'd ride one two you know all the way around france well now they you know do a little bit here and then they drive a bus to there and they do a little bit in this area and they drive a bus always ends in paris Hmm. um and every other year they change directions so this year was clockwise next year they'll go counterclockwise um and then occasionally they go into other countries um Hmm just kind of depending on how, it's kind of like, uh, you know, the cities kind of apply for it the same way you'd apply for the Olympics. Uh,
0: I gotcha. Yeah. So So, watching, watching, um, watching the stage 18 with you, there, there are a couple things that stuck out, Uh, Mm -hmm. you know, so, you know, I'm familiar when when there's the big Kansas City Marathon, they normally run down my street and We'll be out there supporting and all that stuff and you know have burritos or stuff for people to drink. But you know, we're on our porch or whatever. But these people were right on the road. Oh yeah. They we're on the road. There was there was a one there, a media uh uh motorcycle that caused a guy to to fall down. I'm like, why are they so close?
1: Uh so there's a couple of reasons. I mean, part of it's the tradition. Um because you know you'll never see this on tv um but you know the guys who are lagging way behind they'll get pushed people Mm -hmm. will go out on the road and give them a push up the mountain for about 20 yards and and but that's part of it is that oh you mean a literal push not like an encouragement oh (laughs) yes yeah yeah now you can't do it to the guys in the front Uh, Because they'll get penalized. But the guys who are off the back, the guys who are struggling, people run up and push on their butts and and give them a shove up the up the road a little ways. And uh, that's part of the romance of the tour is that you're right there. Now, they do have areas where they'll block off, um, especially the finish line. Um, and feed zones and, and, and stuff like that, because there have been some incidents where people have accidentally knocked somebody over. Um, people have have caught a handlebar and, you know, uh, knocked people down. Uh, there have even been incidents where people have attacked <laughs> somebody Wait. and just given them a good, you know, <laughs> shoulder to the Where the, t- to the Tour de France becomes like a hockey, like they become hockey It Kind of. It's usually in, in the smaller races and it's usually not unwarranted. It's usually something <laughs> where somebody will do, somebody will, you know, Rub a tire and cause somebody to crash, and the guy on the side of the road runs up and throws an elbow
0: into the
1: guy. So, are they basically
0: like saying, in French, he had it coming? Like, just you know. (laughs) Sometimes, oh yeah. All right. So, talk to me. Talk to us a little bit about this because the one of the other things that struck me as you were talking about the stage, there is a moment. And you'd sent me a video of, of this moment where Pogacar, hes trying, he is fighting like heck to try to catch him—and there's a moment that happens, like what that that really kind of talks to the sportsmanship of the sport that I didn't know was a thing. Oh yeah,
1: but. yeah. So that so so Pogacar and Vineyard were descending uh, the final descent uh, before they get to Hotakam and the the pogachar attacked first um mm-hmm. and and attacking while descending is a dicey uh scenario um and the two of them were keeping up pretty good at one point pogachar's uh i'm sorry uh Vinugard's back wheel slid
2: mm-hmm. now he was
1: able to stay upright but then a few yards, a few meters later, same thing happened to Pogashar, but he slid out. Um, mm-hmm. He was able to get up very quickly, um, but Vinagard had, had gotten enough of a gap that yeah. he was kind of out of the way. Uh, and, and he actually slowed down and, and waited for Pogashar to catch up. Um, And if you watch the video, the two of them shake hands and, and Pogashar kind of turns around and gives them a thumbs up Mm. and it's all, you know, that sort of thing is kind of dictated on the road. Um, So it has to do with how bad did you crash? How quick did you get back up? Mm. And, but it really comes down to, for someone like Vineyard to say, to himself, is this how I want to win the tour? Do I want Mm. to win the tour because of I attacked when he crashed? Um, Because that's just kind of considered bad form Mm. um, when, when something like that happens. Uh, And it's, and it's a, it's a fairly common uh, gentleman's agreement. Um, And part of it has to do with, uh, you know, the, the the phrase there, but for the grace of God, go I mm-hmm. is, you know, you know, 50 meters up the road, the same thing could have happened to Vineyard right his wheel yeah. slid. Yeah. And uh so it's kind of a gentleman's agreement that nobody really attacks during a crash or a mechanical uh issue. They call them just mechanicals. Mm-hmm. Um, But, you know, if you can, if you as the rider are able to correct very quickly, the the agreement is that you're given the chance to catch back up and start racing from where you were when the issue happened. So,
0: okay, so that's, so that's a gentleman's agreement while on the road. I want to talk to you about because you'd mentioned this to me, this to me the other night, and I, I'd love for our listeners to to get some of the backstory. There was a what I would, based on what you were saying, like a very famous or infamous gentleman's agreement between um, two racers, one of which you'd mentioned was a gentleman by the name of Greg Lamond, who who changed hmm. the face of not just American racing, but sounds like he changed racing, cycling. He absolutely. Uh, in Talk to me about Greg Lemond, and and maybe it might be useful to even talk about just even the tour before Greg Lemond won his first tour.
1: Because oh, I yeah. Really so, him. so Greg comes in, and he is just a machine. Uh, he he just was born to be a cyclist. And there's just no getting around that fact. He didn't have to take any drugs. He didn't have to do anything. And he comes in as an American into a very staunch uh, European mindset. Mm -hmm. So by the time Greg LeMond shows up in the early 80s, you know, the Europeans have been racing the Tour de France since 19. 15, 1920 since you know way way back yeah and a lot of things that they considered to be they being the europeans considered to be sacred weren't necessarily based on any real science it was more just tradition yeah. um you know one of the things that they would do is in the early, uh, the late winter They would train on on roads, but they would be using what was called a fixed gear bicycle. So the the so generally speaking, if you're riding a bicycle and you stop pedaling, you can coast. Yeah. A fixed gear is typically used for track racing, but they would use it on the road. And the deal is there's no coasting. Mm. If the wheel is moving, the pedals are moving. Gotcha. The the gear in the back is solid. Okay. And that supposedly warmed up your knees for the, you know, since then, (laughs) it's been proven that it doesn't make a difference. And nobody really, really does that anymore. But what Lamont did was he came in and he didn't have any of that baggage. Mm. So he was just doing it the way he was doing it back in Minnesota and his races in Colorado and the races in Arizona and California and Nevada, Utah, back in that, in the, in the South, in the Southwest. But talk to me a little bit about what
0: you mentioned that Greg Lamont was born to be a cyclist. What is it about Greg Lamont that, that made him that way? What, what, what made him unique?
1: The main thing is his ability to convert, oxygen into energy for his muscles they call it the vo2 max Mm -hmm. um and basically they measure it by putting a putting an inhaler on your on your mouth and you exercise and it's measuring how much oxygen you take in versus how much you breathe out right and his set the records and you know still holds the olympic uh facility record for the highest, uh, VO two max. So he is inhaling more oxygen and exhaling less oxygen than anybody else that's been tested, which means that all of that oxygen that he's inhaling is going directly to his muscles and serving his muscular energy. Mm. Cause that's what makes your muscles tired is you run out of oxygen and then it starts burning lactic acid. And that's when your, your, your leg, your muscles start burning. That's what the burning sensation is. Mm -hmm. Um, And I make no claims to be a medical expert. This is just generally kind (laughs) of how I understand it. Yeah. Um, But it's generally the way it works. Uh, And so he can go longer without converting into lactic acid before Mm. anybody else. Okay. So basically he's just an engine. He is a, he is a, and, and again, it's genetics. It's not Mm. anything that he did. It's just pure genetics that he was born able to do this. Mm. And so he's racing in the late seventies in the United States in these semi-organized, because um, in the late 70s, it was all kind of half-assed. It really mm-hmm. was. Um, and he's just killing everybody. And, um, you know, the, we, when he was very young, he wrote a list of goals, including winning the Tour de France, winning the World Championship, winning a gold medal at the Olympics. Well we boycotted the 1980 right, Olympics. Mm-hmm. So he missed it. Um, and that's the only thing on his goal sheet he never got. Uh, because the other thing, too, was back then, if you turned pro, you couldn't be part of the Olympics. That's right. So once he turned pro, his Olympic dream was done.
0: So you're telling me his VO2 record. So if he qualified for the 1980 Olympics, that means he probably tested somewhere 79, 80. You're telling me that for over 40 years, there has not... So, we're not just talking about uh, VO2 for just for cyclists.
1: No, no, no. We're talking VO2...
0: So, any person who's ever participated in the Olympics since ever, since we've Mm -hmm. been recording this stuff, you're talking about the greatest athletes that have ever Mm -hmm. walked the earth. Mm -hmm. You're saying he has this basically i'm you know i'm not a i'm not a medical doctor either the strongest lung heart combo yep.
1: in recorded history yes in america In i america. say in america in america I don't, know, I don't know where it stands now okay rumor had it that lance beat him but the facts did not play out mm. mm-hmm. 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 that was that was one <laughs> of uh that was one of the the stories <laughs> when Lance was doing his thing was well, he had great VO2 max. Yeah, eh, wow. He didn't have as good as Greg did. <laughs> so, the other thing that Greg brings to the equation is a an acceptance of new technology, because mm. that's something else that again the the stodgy Europeans were really slow to adopt. Yeah. Um, And and before we get... So before we get to that, we'll talk about 1985 Mm -hmm. was uh, the year before he won his Tour de France. So when Greg was first signed to a European team, he was signed to a team... Uh, called Jetain, which was a bicycle manufacturer out of France. One of his teammates was Bernard Mm Hinault. And Hinault actually had seen what Greg was doing in the States and wanted Greg on the team. Uh, Greg's job on Jetain um, was what's known as a domestique. And so you are part of the team and your purpose is to your 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 main purpose Mm. is to help the leader. In this Mm -hmm. case, Bernardino, Um, anything else that happens is icing on the cake. So if you're in the Tour de France and you're a domestique and you end up winning a stage, all well and good. But that's not necessarily what you're there for. Mm. Um, so Le Mans helps, you know, to win 83. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in 1984, Eno you know, is injured and there's a team, another teammate on the same team, uh, named Laurent Fignon, who's mm-hmm. a couple years older. Uh, and so Fignon becomes, the leader for that year uh and so greg helps Fignon to win the tour uh in 84 the other reason for that is politics because you know and Fignon are both french mm. and it's there's there's extra honor uh for the tour when a french person when a frenchman wins mm. and i'm using the male uh, yeah. pronoun because this is a male sport. There is a women's side, and we can talk about that sometime mm-hmm. if you want to. Yeah. But so having a Frenchman win, good for France. Yeah. So yeah. now they've got two years in a row. By this time, uh, coming into 1985, Inot is has started a different team. Uh, he's become disha- He's become dissatisfied with Tain dissatisfied with the coaching so on and so forth la vie claire is the the team that he gets um and i might be mixing up some of the dates but 85 is for sure lamont and again you know wants lamond on la vie claire so lamont comes to la vie claire in 85 and you know is winning the tour he's yellow jersey But there's a stage in the third, early part of the third week. So it's far enough along that when Bernard gets into trouble, there's potential for him to lose the Tour de France completely. Mm. And he's in big trouble. He's the, the term they use is he's cracked. Hmm. which means he's got no energy left in his legs. You can see it in their face. They're just, there's nothing left. Uh, another term is bonked. Um, hmm. But he's, he's, so he's cracked. LeMond is up the road covering an attack on Eno. And I forget who it was, um, but the two of them are side by side. And basically LeMond's job before he know cracks is to try to waste as much energy out of this other guy as he can. Mm-hmm. So he's pushing the pace, but he's also trying to make sure the guy is not drafting behind him. Mm-hmm. So They're all over the road and Lamont is riding His ass off. Well, and this predates race radios. So literally the team car drives up next to Lamond and says, You have to pull over, literally pull over and wait for Bernard. And Mm. at this point, Greg is what they would call leader on the road. So like Mm. if everything stopped right then and there, Greg would be in the yellow jersey. And so Greg is running this through his mind going, if I stop, I'm going to, I'm literally going to throw away any chance I have at winning the Tour de France but he's not the leader he's mm. the domestique and so he pulls over and he waits for bernard and he does he drags bernard back so he's the at this point he's yeah. wanting the draft right so yeah. he drags Eno back to the main group meaning Elephant. that he's
0: in front and he's
1: like basically eating the wind as it yes or yes bernard. okay yeah totally totally yeah yeah he's and and you know you know is like this close to Greg's tire and mm, and yeah. so he's conserving you know you know is conserving his energy while Greg wastes it yeah um which again is your role as a de- yeah. as a domestique so Greg drags him back into the main peloton and saves the yellow jersey mm. Essentially saves Eno wow. you know, from losing the yellow jersey. Recovery overnight, you know, the next day is a different, different type of stage. And by the end of it, Eno you know, has won the Tour de France. Mm-hmm. And Eno, you know, and this is where it all gets kind of fuzzy, and <laughs> he said she said, and who mm-hmm. was there, and what did they mean when they said it? Eno you know, said. According to legend, Eno said to Greg, I know what you did this year, next year. So the setup for 86 was that Eno was going to be the domestique and mm. Greg was going to be the leader. Yeah. Couple things happened. So 1985 was bernardino's fifth tour de france win wow which ties the record so up Mm -hmm. until then the most tours anyone had ever won was five uh eddie Merckx had won five jacques unctil uh who is way back in the 60s um had won five and i think that was it i think by then you know joined the ranks Oh wow! So it was just the three of them, and so you know, again, depending on who you ask, depending on when you ask, depending on what story you get, (laughs) you know, had it in the back of his mind that I could own the record outright if I win this year, I could have six, and nobody has won six. Mm. So the tour begins. And in theory, and on paper, and according to what Lavi Claire said in the press, Lamond is the leader. But Eno is not acting like a domestique. Hmm. Eno is attacking Greg. There's yeah, yeah, and Greg is covering the his own teammate. He's covering the attack. Yeah. Because he wants to keep the yellow jersey too. Right. And they end up, actually end up trading the yellow jersey once or twice. Um, I want to say stage 17 or thereabouts. Uh, another huge mountain day, uh, mountaintop finish. Mm-hmm. And there's, uh, there's some photographs of it where you can see LeMond is pretty. Pretty cool customer, and, uh, you know, is bright red face, sucking air. Um, mm. And at the end of that, when LeMond crosses the finish line first, legend has it, you know, shook his hand and said, C'est fini, which is, it's over, it's yours mm. now. So that's how LeMond wins, becomes the first American to win the Tour de France in 1986.
0: Was there, was that the year that, um, was the the first year or was the second one? When did, when did Greg LeMond basically revolutionize handlebars? Like, uh, there, that would have been
1: 89. Okay. So, so between 86 and 89, there's a few things that happens. Um, Greg is turkey hunting uh, with his father and brother-in-law and his father-in-law. Not with Dick Cheney. Not with Dick Cheney, but he okay. might as well have been because he got shot. <laughs> he gets shot. He gets airlifted. One of his lungs collapses. Lucky to be alive, much less ever going to ride his bike again. Um, surgeries, removal of, of, of shot, but some of the shot is in places where it's just too dangerous to get i mean so mm. today he still has buckshot and buckshot i don't know if it's buckshot or what you hunt turkeys with but yeah lead pellets in the lining of some of his lungs uh in the lining of certain areas of his heart uh and areas like that so he's he's and essentially as as he ages uh, that lead has been leaching into mm. his body, and he's been he has been um, dealing with health issues uh, based on that. He takes 1987 off, comes back in '88, does iffy. You know, he's middle of the pack uh, yeah. type finishes, but in '89 he comes in. And he's got a new sponsor, um, and his spring campaign was eye-opening for a lot of people. So he's raced, you know, a lot of a, a lot of, depending on what your objectives are uh, for the year, because um, there's a different a lot of different types of races. But uh, if your objective is the Tour de France, you use your spring races as training to for the tour um and one of the main uh races that is always a good indicator for the tour is a race called the dauphiné uh and it's a week-long stage race and greg did very well i don't know if he won that dauphiné that year or or if he but he just he finished really high and people were Mm -hmm. really surprised and he came into the 1989 tour in incredible form, uh, and ready to ready to kick ass and take names. And his main competition that year is Laurent Fignon, former hmm. teammate, ah. good friend. Yeah. Uh huh. So you're dealing with that. The two of them trade the yellow jersey back and forth. Gosh, I don't know how many times, but. I mean it is it is literally it's it's Lance and or it's uh, Greg and Laurent. I mean it's that. Mm. The other thing that happens is every year they change the tour route. So mm. I talked about that earlier. Starts in different places, yeah. does different things. That year in 89, they decided that the last stage, stage 20 where they come into Paris was going to be what they called an individual time trial. And what that means is that each person who is still in the race goes out on their own with a minute to two minutes between the next guy going out. So they start from last place and move to first place is how they organize mm-hmm. it. And up until you get to about the top 10, everybody goes out at one minute in intervals. And then after the top 10, you go out in two minute intervals. So it gets to the point where Greg is, gonna go road, mm-hmm. later, is going, going to go on the road and then two minutes later, Fignon is going to go on the road because he's number one. Fignon's got mm-hmm. the yellow Jersey and he has it. He owns it by about 53 seconds, if I remember correctly. And if I don't, your listeners are welcome to Google it. <laughs> um, but, there's a couple things going on before the race so one of the things that's happening is a guy named ed scott who was a designer for a company called scott usa and scott usa initially started in skiing and their big uh contribution was they invented tapered aluminum ski poles so Mm. before scott came along ski poles were wooden or bamboo or you know they had to be lightweight so it wasn't like any of them were metal or anything like that well scott and and uh i can't think of the other guy but the basically the funder Mm. uh designed What we now use as ski pole, like every single ski pole is aluminum tapered now, um, Mm -hmm. because it's lightweight, very strong, workable, whole thing. And when you're downhill skiing, you get into that arrow tuck with your hands in front of you and kind Mm -hmm. of behind your head. And anyone who's watched downhill skiing on the Olympics. You can imagine it in your in your head when they're not, you know, when they're not touring or turning or anything and they've just got a straightaway to go. They tuck their elbows in, they put their hands in front of their face and the poles are sticking out behind them. Ed Scott, round about 1987, 88, is watching this <clears throat> and he's watching uh, uh, an individual time trial on the Tour de France. And what, what they're using at that time are what are called bullhorn handlebars. So if you, if you imagine the handlebars, road handlebars, they come out and they kind of curve down and they make right. kind of a yeah. C and, and you're, you're holding on to that. Well, what, they, what the bullhorn does is it comes out and it curves up. Mm-hmm. So that gets you into a lower tuck and flattens your back out. And get you into a bit more of an aerodynamic position. But your chest is still open wide. Yeah. Your arms are still hanging out to the side of you. And it clicks in Ed Scott's mind. That if you put a handlebar. onto the front of those. Cowhorn hmm. bars. That's in the middle. You can get yourself into that. Ski. Type. Position that's Mm, more aerodynamic. So he literally just bends aluminum into a U Mm. and puts bolts on it, clamps on it where you could clamp it to the handlebars. And before the race is starting, Ed's got, you know, half a dozen of these aluminum U's hanging off of his forearm. Mm. And he's walking around asking riders if they want to try him out. Um, Finion puts him on his bike, gives it a try, but he feels like he can't breathe. He feels like it's mm. constricting his lungs mm. to have his arms tucked in so closely. So he decides against it. Lamond, on the other hand, tries it out and knows that this is going to be an aerodynamic advantage. The fun part, this is the the fun (laughs) little trivia part that I love is Lamont has the bars on his bike and his bike is mounted to a set of rollers. So it's stationary and he's kind of practicing with them and he's pulling on them. And all of a sudden he yanks and the handlebars pull up and almost hit him in the head. And He looks at Ed and Ed says, Greg, you're never going to pull that hard when you're out there. And Greg's response was, I pull that hard with every pedal stroke. So Ed is frantically panicking. Mm -hmm. Greg wants these. This Mm -hmm. is going to be a huge deal for Scott USA. How do I fix it? And he finds an empty Coke can and he takes a pair of tin snips And he cuts the Coke can into shims that Mm. he puts in between the clamps and the handlebars on, on the, the, the arrow handlebars. Yeah. And if you look really close, uh, there's a, there's a photo. If you, you go out and Google, there's a photo right before Greg starts his time trial where he's being held by the, uh, The race official, because in a time trial, you start and they hold you. And when the clock starts, you go down a ramp and get Mm. going. So he's being held by the race official. And if you zoom in, you can see the edges of the Coke can sticking out from the Scott handlebars. Mm. So getting back to the race itself, Lamond is 50 three seconds behind and i want to say it's about a 30 kilometer time trial Mm. so lamond hits the road and he's got these aerodynamic handlebars he's got an aerodynamic helmet and he's got a disc wheel in the back spoke wheel in the front um and he is riding like the devil's on his tail Two minutes later, uh gets out on goes out on the road. He's got just the bullhorn bars, mm-hmm. no helmet, because he's he's cool enough. He wants his ponytail flapping in yeah. the wind. <laughs> he does have a disc front wheel as well as the back wheel, so there's some aerodynamics there. And Greg hits the finish, you know, and they go the Champs-Élysées, which is where they always finish on the Champs-Élysées mm-hmm. and they do a couple of laps around the Champs <clears throat> and Le Mans crosses the finish line and the clock starts. And by the time it's done, by the time Fignon hits the finish line he is eight seconds behind Le Mans wow. finishing time. And to this day, wow. that is number one—the fastest average time ever in a stage of the Tour de France—and it's the smallest uh, difference between first and second place. And there's, wow. I mean, there's photographs of that too. If you photog- if you Google the podium, there's a there's a photograph. It's a great photograph. You could just see it on everybody's face. Fignon is sitting there with a look of what the hell just happened. (laughs) Lamond is standing there with, oh my God, I can't believe I won the Tour de France. And Pedro Delgado, who came in third place, is, I'm just happy to be here. (laughs) (laughs) So you've
0: got an American racer who suffered what could have been a very catastrophic injury. Mm-hmm. um it makes me it think was hey, a catastrophic it, it? yeah theory. it if, was if he did not have yeah it sounds like his his uh physical makeup allowed him to recover in such a way yes. that you know and that he would two years later is showing up and runs the fastest time trial it sounds right. so he's got a lot of oh the the strongest, you know, you know VO two. He's got the fastest time. Just suppose that. I mean, and and everything all natural. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, Absolutely. And, yeah, and so at this to moment person, in time, everybody has said there's never. Greg was, hundred percent clean. Not even Fignon. Hmm. Fignon admitted himself that he he blew coke and and. He was more of a partier, but um, he. Didn't I mean, do a it lot sounds of... like
0: there was a. It was a different. T- I mean, it sounds like, like you'd mentioned earlier that the seventies, like sixties and seventies, were kind of a mess. So it, it it sounded like there were maybe a lot of drugs that may not have been considered that by today's standards wouldn't be considered performance enhancing, right? But seemed like very necessary. For, because it, it sounded like racing was completely different back oh yeah then.
1: yeah before World War II, um, it was a it was a much different it was still a sponsorship based um, business model um, but it was not it was rare to have a contract for guaranteed money. So mm. like today you sign a contract with a team, and your contract is structured in such a way that you make X amount of, X amount of euros usually uh, in a salary plus bonus. Plus if you, you know, depending on what types of races you win and then uh, winnings, mm-hmm. you know, cause you get money for winning the race as well. Um, but back before World War II and, and earlier than that, there was no guaranteed money. So you as a professional cyclist were living off of winnings Mm -hmm. and that creates two, two aspects of racing that then become inextricable in, even in modern day racing. Number one is you have to, well, I take that back. You have one that is inextricable and then one, That changes as the contract changes. So, one of the things, what the thing that changes as you get, as you start getting guaranteed money is you don't have to race every single race there is. So, back before World War II, these guys would race, then they would take essentially a, uh, you know, a speedball, so Coke and heroin after the race to chill out. Then they would take a bunch of amphetamines and drive overnight to the next race. And they had to do that because it was a matter of, that's my money. I got to race. I got to race. I got to race. If I'm not racing, I'm not making money. If I'm injured, I'm not making money. So I'm taking these drugs just to make a living. After World War II and after the, the cyclists form a union, and you start getting contracts that have salaries with them, racing every day becomes less of an issue, but the drugs stick around because, mm. hey, those amphetamines helped mm. the next day. So I'm going to take amphetamines today. So it'll help today. Yeah. Um, you know, there's, there's arguments for and against whether or not, amphetamines help you Mm. uh race faster but you certainly have feel like you have more energy yeah um and that's kind of the bulk of it until 1991 when a drug called EPO enters the scene and what EPO is able to do is increase artificially increase your vo2 max so Mm. the the medical reason for having epo there's a legitimate medical reason for having it Um, generally it's for cancer patients who are taking a treatment that reduces their red blood count so they take epo to keep their red blood count at a normal level what the hmm. cyclists then do is to have their they have their red blood count at a normal level and they take EPO to boost that red blood count. And so hmm. you're much like what Greg LeMond was able to do naturally these guys are artificially prolonging the point at which they start burning lactic acid. So what happens when you are a
0: cyclist competing at an international level? and then you are diagnosed with cancer. Um, for instance, probably the most famous slash infamous name in racing? What Yeah, so it sounds to me that that EPO, um, and Lance Armstrong nope.
1: had, a, had a date with destiny, I guess. Well, you know, the fact of the matter is, um, and he's admitted to this by now, so this isn't alleged anymore. Fact of the matter is, he was don't sue us, Lance. Over- huh? Yeah, I said
0: like, don't sue us, Lance. Please.
1: well i mean that's the thing is he went on oprah and spilled his guts to an extent um but yeah he had been taking epo even before cancer because lance started as a professional in 91 or 92 Mm. um now he was a professional triathlete before that and then he figured out that he could make more money being a site. So he had before the cancer came along and that was part of some of the depositions that were given by, uh, uh, former teammate Frankie Andreu and his wife, uh, whose first name escapes me. Um, but the two of them were in the hospital room when Lance had been diagnosed and when they were going through his medical history. And the doctor was like, OK, what have you taken? And Lance said EPO, testosterone, so on and so forth. Well, well Frankie and Betsy, I do—I remember your name now, mm-hmm. Frankie and Betsy mm-hmm. gave depositions that that happened. Um, and this was all before he went on Oprah. And so that was when Lance started targeting Frankie and basically ruined Frankie's career. Cause Frankie had Frankie had left the team by then, mm-hmm. which was strike number one, uh, for Lance. He had started coaching an amateur team. Um, And Lance went after him and got him fired from that. Uh, And then Frankie had started working as a commentator. Um, And Lance got him fired from that. So this is, so this is,
0: I'm glad we're talking about this because I know that, that most people are familiar, obviously with Lance Armstrong was the face of, of racing. They know he had cancer. They know he was doping, but I, I don't, I'm not sure how many people truly understand that it wasn't that he was doping, because it sounds like at this point, just, you know, they say in college football, if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying, that pretty much all of the major cyclists were doping at the time he was doping. It was the things he was doing outside of the races that seems Mm -hmm. like that were really
1: dastardly yeah the the the, he was he was out to try to silence anybody who who was disparaging in his words uh disparaging him and Lamond was one of them Mm. um in fact Lamond had by this time in 2000 2001 uh Lamond had a fairly well-established uh bicycle line the, you know, the Greg LeMond bicycles. Um, and it had, it had reached a point in profitability that Trek bicycles actually purchased LeMond bicycles. So they were a subsidiary of Trek bicycles. Trek was the major bicycle, or the only bicycle sponsor that Lance ever had. And so by about 2002, Lance was talking with the president of, of Trek Bicycles and saying, look, if you want to keep me, you got to get rid of Lamont bikes. And sure enough, that's what they did. And that was during a period where there was still, there was still plausible deniability um, with, with what Lance was doing. So the the
0: big the, the the biggest name in the sport at the time was taking out the person who had been mm-hmm. the biggest name, at least in America. Yes. Um so if people just they walked away from Lamont. It sounded like it sounded like they the did. sponsors were just Lance was at this but at this point. He was the, I, you know, we talked. I, I, I believe he was at, at the time the biggest name in sports.
1: Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. He was a rock I mean, star.
0: He was he absolutely was a he rock was star. A
1: single name. Yeah. I mean, that's the. Uh, thing. He was the in one fact, name. Yeah. In fact, he
0: to to say he was the biggest name in sports is to not do him justice. He was so much bigger than sport. Absolutely.
1: Uh, absolutely. He,
0: yeah. Yeah. He was. He was in our own. I mean, there are very few athletes that I believe have ever in the history ever gotten to that point, and I obviously yeah. I don't don't at me, but I do feel like <laughs> I feel don't like at me either, but what I'm about to say, but I feel like there hadn't been an athlete who had done what he was able to do transcending sport um Jordan Michael Jordan yep uh, but before Ali. that Muhammad
1: Ali, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, I mean it was that it was that and the thing about it was and the reason trek dropped greg is because trek was making just gobs of money off of his name. Yeah. I mean he was in every advertisement that trek made, every yeah. poster, every, you know, there was there was a whole you can ride the same bike lance rides and they were just swimming in money. And so was Nike yeah. um, as his shoe sponsor and a company called Giro, which was his helmet sponsor. Um, they were all just swimming in money. And to, from a fiscal standpoint, to get sideways with Lance was just going to cost. It would
0: have been a, a very, very bad business decision you know, to, to, to to, to be, to oppose, to oppose them. So I understand why they did it. Um, But, and so where, where did, where did things stand now? Like where, where, where is Lance and where is Greg Lamont? Like how, how are they being viewed now within the
1: cycling community? Within the cycling community, it's, it's flip back. Um, Everybody knows Greg is clean. Everybody yeah. knows Greg was clean. Everybody knows Greg is honest as the day is, you know, I mean, he's yeah. the equivalent of a Boy Scout, quite yeah. frankly. Lance um, currently runs a um, a charity called We Do, W-E-D-U, um, that... Wait, what happened exactly. to what happened to Livestrong? Where is Livestrong? What Livestrong, happened to that? Livestrong uh, folded. I mean, that was a, once once he went on Oprah, Livestrong collapsed on itself. Even 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 getting rid of him as the CEO and the president and taking him off the board couldn't save Livestrong. And on top of that, by that time, that was the other thing too. By that time, Livestrong really wasn't a charity. As much as it was mm. a way for Lance to funnel money into his pocket, and again, yeah. fully admitted this. This is not an allegation; these proved themselves out. Yeah, uh, Travis Tigart uh, was uh, the federal investigator, um, mm. and that was part of his report. Um, so you know, there's there's by that time Livestrong. Was really just a way to funnel money. We do is. They hold events. Um, and I think. Ostensibly. They, they are cancer. Um, but I'm not sure. I, I, I honestly haven't really. Looked that deeply into it. Yeah. Um, but he does. He still has his. His inner circle. Um, Lance. Uh, Still has an inner circle that, of course, is much, much smaller than it it used to be. Um, But a former teammate, George Hencappy, who has come clean on his own, uh, but always sort of took the pleat, pled the fifth on on any Lance questions. So that's how he remained in the inner circle. Um, the two of them have for the last few years, uh, done a podcast for the tour. Um, they kind of, you know, the, the, the stage happens and they kind of recap the tour stages. Um, and they do, I mean, they have honest to God insight. They were part of it. They know what goes on in the Peloton. I mean, that's the thing. I, all I, I, I will fully admit I was, I was, I've been a bicycle mechanic for 15 years. Uh, read a bunch of books, read a bunch of magazines, um, never raced a, 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 an organized race in my life. So, I mean, a- anything I'm telling you, some of it may be, you know, a little off on the dates or a little off on on exactly what happened. And, but you can Google, you know, folks can Google all of this and I mean, it's you can you can find out Frankie and Betsy's story really easily, um, and how poorly he was he how poorly Lance treated him yeah. once once he broke the code yeah um, so yeah but Greg and Greg is is rebuilding his uh, bicycle company um, it's it's very. It's, it's aimed at a very narrow niche market. Mm. Um, is very high-quality carbon fiber. Um, so you're talking folks who have a lot of cash, folks who mm. um, are looking to be... I hesitate to use the word cosplay um, mm. because that kind yeah. of... That kind of, uh, but really, I mean, that's the thing. You dress up. I I will tell you this too, as a cyclist myself now, I've spent plenty of years wearing the skin tight stuff. I even shaved my legs, um, but I don't cosplay <laughs> that stuff anymore. Uh, what you're, what you see me wearing right here, in a pair of baggy shorts. I'm and just imagining plain old you tennis shoes.
0: I'm just imagining you, like in a in a tub. And you've got like a uh, uh, you know like two fingers worth of wine in a glass, <laughs> and and you're like listening to Adele, and you're and you're <laughs> and you're just shaving you're just you're, you're shaving you're shaving your legs, and uh, you know you know, <laughs> you, you know you're singing a "Set Fire to the Rain," and it
1: and it's great, you know. <laughs> I will say I did it. I did I did it many many years before Adele.
0: all right so all right i gotta i gotta i gotta ask you i gotta ask you um uh we 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 talked about this we talked about this before give me your not your not necessarily your top five worst or even your top five best
1: your top five most memorable cycling movies oh movies yeah tip top is breaking away everybody needs to watch breaking away Um, and, and that is, uh, it's late seventies. Um, and, um, I can't think of the names of anybody who's in it, but you recognize them as soon as you see them. But the basic story is kid lives in Indianapolis, loves bicycle racing, loves the Italians. They're the greatest cyclists in the world. Um, and Indiana U has the Little 500 Bicycle mm-hmm. Race, which is for real, um, and it's, it's it, organized by the fraternities, um, and I, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a charitable event. And basically, they're on bicycles, and they ride for, mm-hmm. I, it's not 500 miles, it's you know, 500 laps, I think. And the basic story is that they for this year, for that year, they're going to open up a spot for locals who are not in college because that's the whole thing. That's Mm -hmm. the nice thing. The nice thing about Breaking Away is that it's a coming of age story that happens to somebody who loves bicycles as opposed to something like American Flyers where they try to make cycling the plot i gotcha so so yeah so the cutters that's stone cutters because that's the the major industry in indiana at the time the cutters get to feel the team and so um and i won't give away any but it's a wonderful movie um and, so, if, and so just, if
0: breaking away again, if,
1: coming of age. Yeah, so if breaking away if is the watch best, watch nothing.
0: Yeah, yep. breaking away. So breaking, breaking away
1: wa- is the best. If
0: breaking away is the best, um, and rad is the worst, <laughs> what makes this from the worst to first cycle movie sandwiches? What's in between? If, if breaking away is the best, rad's the worst.
1: What you got? What's in the middle? Well, American Flyers is in the middle. I mean, if you're talking about fiction, right? Yeah. So there's not very many fiction movies about cycling. There's some biopics. There's a biopic about Lance. Okay. uh, That isn't bad. Um, It kind of glosses over a few things, but at the same time, it... it, I mean, there's a moment where... Mm you know, they're wanting to search his house Mm -hmm. and he's like, I'm Lance fucking Armstrong. Mm -hmm. So I'm sorry. You might have to bleep that (laughs) out, but, uh, but he is, he's like, I'm Lance Armstrong. Go ahead. Give it a try suckers. Um, So that biopic does a a fairly good job of presenting obviously in a, in a dramatic, you know, an over-dramatized way, but it presents the narcissistic aspect of Lance. Um, and I forget what the name of it is, honestly. I watched it once. It was, And again, it's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, American Flyers has its fun moments. Um, but then there's some documentaries, like there's a documentary called A Sunday in Hell uh, yeah. that follows... Uh, a single day race uh, called Paris Roubaix, and again I'm terrible with the accents, but um, it's it's they also call the race the Hell of the North. So it's in northern France, uh, and it goes from Paris to Roubaix. Obviously, mm-hmm. cobblestones. Usually, there's terrible weather, rain, mud, craziness insanity and uh sunday in hell is i want to say the 73 maybe the 75 somewhere between 73 and 75 um and eddie Merckx is is the winner and i'm giving nothing away because Mm -hmm. you can look up who won that but but the 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 greatness of that movie is that it is able to capture the drama of bicycle racing and just how hard it is and how crazy it can be and just how nuts these guys, I mean, they really are. I mean, that's, Mm. you, you know, we, we were talking about the, the crash on the descent earlier. I mean, those guys are doing 40 miles an hour down that, on a bicycle, wearing hmm. no protection except a helmet, yeah. lycra, skin tight lycra. I mean, you've crashed and it ain't nothing but holes after that. Um, Sunday in Hell is a great one. Um, I'm trying to think, it's been a while since I've uh, I put there's well, and then there's I, I actually there's one worse than than rad. It's called BMX Bandits. and it was it was it was an australian film and it (laughs) oh yeah oh yeah it's it's terrible it is absolutely wretched are they like a gang is it they they, are, are yeah they're kind of a gang and um oh shoot i can't think of her name she was uh the redhead that was married to uh Now I can't think of his Nicole, name either. Nicole Kidman? Nicole Kidman, yes. Nicole Kidman it's was like in BMX Bandits? Nicole Kidman is in BMX Bandits, like one of her first movies. Oh, wow. What was I know, the I should have had a she crib with sheet she with, with all these names.
0: What was the movie she made with Tom Cruise, the, the NASCAR, where he was the NASCAR driver? Do you remember that one?
1: Yes, yeah, yeah. Well, that was bad, too. Um, that was bad, too.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, wow, Pala so... Luba.
0: Yeah, so so we're I, I'm gonna have to watch Rad. We're gonna you know so we'll we'll do Rad and and but maybe BMX Bandits since that might God. be the worst. Maybe that's the one. Okay, that's brutal. Can no, I, we need I, to do
1: Rad instead. Yeah, can <laughs> I can
0: I just say I'm a little disappointed that I have not heard um, Vision Quest on your list of most memorable. Um cycling movies. Was so that was a wrestling
1: movie though.
0: What wait, but what that was a wrestling movie? I thought that was oh. a wrestling movie. Oh, you know what? I'm thinking of Quicksilver. <laughs> that was Christian Slater, Quicksilver. right? Quicksilver. Yes. Yeah. So I but okay. So I'm thinking that there was a there's a scene though in Vision Quest where I think he's like on a bike or something. But I, I believe to that. Yeah. You're right. That is totally a wrestling movie. Yeah, yeah. He would have been. Uh. He would have
1: been trying to make weight by oh, yeah. bicycle. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Did you ever wrestle? Did you ever do that? Ever wrestle? I did. I wrestled as freshman, and I was over for whatever. Wow. <laughs> terrible. You,
0: what? 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 What's the craziest thing you ever did to make weight? I never did anything to oh. make weight. That was,
1: part, <laughs> that was part of the reason why. I, that was part of the reason why I was terrible.
0: I gotta tell you, I need to be doing something right now to make weight. I mean, I mean <laughs> I mean, maybe I need to go around because like I remember guys <laughs> in high school like wearing like trying to put like cellophane. Yes. Like and, you know, under their sweatsuit or whatever. and yep. It's just r- ridiculous, man. Yeah, we had
1: it's... a guy come around and get, get everybody's winter coats. <laughs> and he was running up and down stairs. <laughs> so, but I will tell you this about Quicksilver. Mm-hmm. If you watch Quicksilver again, the very beginning, when uh, Kevin Bacon is uh, in the car and yeah. he's having the car chase down the bicyclist, uh-huh. With the with the beret that he yeah, ends up yeah. wearing, yeah, that that guy, the cyclist, is Nelson Bales, and Nelson Bales was a track cyclist in the '84 Olympics, uh, gold mm. medal winning. Oh uh, wow! Very massive, massive success. Again, track cycling doesn't get nearly the the press that any other type of cycling gets. Mm. Um, but it's, but there, there's a lot of, and there's some carryover too. So, um, you know, I can bring up uh, Bradley Wiggins, who was a British rider. He was actually the first British rider to win the tour, um, but he converted from track. Oh. So he rode track in the Olympics and then became a road rider and then won the tour de France and then wow. retired. Uh, um. And he was, he was very mod. He, mm. he liked to consider himself a mod. Have the yeah. stupid-ass haircut and all that stuff. And... <laughs> <Yeah>. Dude. He <laughs> I... used, used the colorful slurs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Joe, man, so, this has been... The main one, this... beginning with C. Yeah. <laughs> the
0: C, so... For all of you who who have who, who who have listened and made it all the way here, this is this is just what conversations between Joe and I have been like for thirty years. So, uh, I I and I am I am I am glad. And honestly, Joe, we'll, we'll have to have you back because I know there are other. I mean, obviously, the Tour de France is the is the big race, but there there are other ones. There's a Tour of Spain. There's a Tour of Italy. Um, mm-hmm but I also think there you know and we haven't even talked about mountain biking. We haven't talked about mountain biking. We haven't talked about um I, I you know when we come back and have a conversation about the economy, conversations about the environment that oh, yeah. the, the 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 role of cycling in the in the past present mm. and future of, you know of how we do life and do community. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think you're gonna you're gonna be on. A well, few thank guys, you. I think I look forward to it. Thank you for having me today. Oh well, this has been awesome. Again, everyone, uh, first friend of the show, Joe Thompson. <laughs>
1: Thanks, man. Sure thing, man. Anytime. Thank you for having me and. Hello to everybody out there listening. All right. Peace. And goodbye to everybody out there listening.
0: Yes. (laughs) All right, brother. (laughs)